This is Fearless Rebel Radio, a podcast about body positivity, self-worth, anti-dieting, and feminism. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a professionally trained coach specializing in body image, self-worth, and confidence, and the best-selling author of Body Image Remix. If you're ready to break free of societal standards and stop living behind the number on your scale, then you have come to the right place. Welcome to the show. This is episode 81 of Fearless Rebel Radio, and I am interviewing Rachel Cole about how to navigate the world as a highly sensitive person, the subtle ways we give our power away, and how to reclaim body sovereignty. You can find all the links and resources mentioned in this podcast at summerinandin.com forward slash 81. That's 81. Before we begin, I just want to ask you to quickly go to iTunes to leave a review for this podcast. Leaving a review helps others to find the show and the information that you are learning here. I would be so grateful if you took two minutes to do that. You can head to iTunes, search for Fearless Rebel Radio, then click ratings and reviews and click to review or leave a rating. Second, you can get my free 10-day body confidence makeover at summerinandin.com forward slash freebies with 10 steps to take right now to feel better in your body. Today's guest is Rachel Cole. Rachel is a certified life coach, celebrated teacher, and women's empowerment expert. She has spent 10 years guiding women to identify, understand, and feed their truest hungers at and away from the table. As an eating disorder survivor herself, Rachel speaks with great wisdom, sensitivity, and authority about what it takes to live as a well-fed woman in the modern world. She has traveled across the U.S. and internationally, speaking and teaching to sold-out gatherings of women on how they, too, can find ease and fulfillment in their lives simply by honoring their own hungers. This is a great episode. Rachel and I are on the same wavelength about so many things. I think you are really going to love it. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. I would love to start off by having you tell our listeners a little bit about your story and how you got to where you are today. Sure. I'm always like, should I tell the short version, the medium version, or the long version? Um, <laughs> what do you feel? What do you feel inspired <laughs> to share today? <laughs> I'll try to hit the the salient points. <laughs> Sounds good. So, like many women, when I was in college, I developed an eating disorder, but it was a shock to me because I was not somebody who was who fit what I thought was the stereotype of someone who would develop an eating disorder. You know, when I was told by a doctor that I had an eating disorder, I uh, was shocked. And I thought, you know, I'm not a blonde cheerleader from Texas. Like, you know, I'm a feminist. Mm -hmm. And I just had a, a hard time reconciling, like, how did this happen for me? And so I really set out to figure that out and to find my way back to being well again. And, you know, what I discovered along the way was that you know, for me, the eating disorder was really a way of managing anxiety mm -hmm. and helping to cope with sensitivity. And it was really a product of being deeply mistrustful and disconnected from my body. And through that process, you know, and I'm greatly abbreviating it, but through that process of eventually coming to understand that I could trust my body, that my body was the wisest source of information about what I needed. And I also realized that 
I had to apply the same trust to all of my hungers, that I couldn't just trust my hungers for food and mistrust my hungers for affection or creativity or, you know, on and on and on down the list. And so that has really sort of guided my life and my work, you know, all these many, many, many years later. So I work with women now to to help them come back into that trusting relationship with their body and their hungers both you know, at the table and away from the table. Feel free to ask me to go deeper into... Yeah, I'm curious about the hungers, because I know that that's obviously a foundation of, you know, what you what you talk about. I would love you to expand on some of the hungers and, and when you, in, specifically when you talk about becoming trustful of your body or building up trust with your body to satisfy those hungers. Non-food hungers or food hungers? Yeah, non-food. Non-food, I'm, yeah. I'm super curious about. Yeah. I mean, I can remember, you know, again, many years ago, I was driving home from work and I was having a sort of emergency phone session with my therapist and, you know, saying to her, you know, I, you know, I'm going to binge when I get home. And I know that I wouldn't binge if there was somebody there to hold me, to spoon me, you know, platonically. Mm -hmm. I was aware enough in that moment that what I wanted more than the food was to be held. And I think that, you know, it's just those sort of moments where we can ask ourselves, what is it that I truly want? What is it that I'm truly hungry for? And then, you know, what's my relationship to that hunger? And I think for myself and for so many women, our relationship to those hungers is mistrust. Or, you know, we have a story that we tell ourselves like, you can't want that. That's asking for too much. That's not possible. Don't feel into the longing for that because it'll be too painful because you can't actually get that. Mm. And the result of that is hungry lives and sort of diminished spark, I would say. Because you know, we can all agree that when we're fed across the board, we are our most alive self. And so what we want to be doing is saying, you know, maybe I don't know how to feed this right now. Maybe this hunger feels scary. And it's here for a reason. Just like, you know, our hunger for food is here for a reason. It's telling us what is needed now. And so I try to work with them instead of numbing them or shutting them down. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I think that it's often, like you said, it, it can be scary to identify what some of those hungers are. And more importantly, as you mentioned, feeling worthy of of satisfying it. Totally. Um, because I think that inherently, you know, the when we're looking to food or when our relationship with food is tumultuous, it's often because we don't feel like we're we're good enough. And to satisfy those other hungers, if the underlying piece of the puzzle is I don't feel good enough, it's hard to yeah. it's hard to start to satisfy that. Absolutely. And I think not to get, you know, too spiritual. (laughs) That's okay. But I think that that uh, lack of worthiness, which I certainly experienced for a long time, comes from just sort of a basic disconnection from life. Uh, And I mean that sort of in the spiritual context, like the the family of humans. Mm -hmm. And that when we recognize that, you know, one of the ways that I describe it is sort of like, you know, all of life is a patchwork quilt and I'm just one square. And so I serve the whole by feeding and taking care of my square in Mm. this quilt. And so it's, it doesn't become such a isolated, do I deserve it or not? It's like, this is how I serve everybody 
by doing what it takes for me to be my happiest, most alive self. Right. So it's, it's, it's like the oxygen mask thing yes, in a way, absolutely. you know, like you have to, you have to take care of yours in, in order to take care of others. And I, I love the, I love the quilt metaphor for that. It's beautiful. You know, I think we can all agree that when we have been dieting or restricting or in a sort of chaotic relationship with food, we're not that checked into life. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not that checked into our friendships. We're not that checked into our jobs. A lot of our mental energy is going to these distraction pursuits, numbing pursuits, absolutely uh, soothing pursuits. And so we are living at a time in history where we need all women to be here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need you on deck ready to report for duty, not counting calories. So. Yes. Yes. And isn't it so interesting that a lot of these shifts and the need for women to step up happened around the same time as January, which is when so many people go into that dieting yeah. frame of mind. I'm actually curious to know, you know, do you feel like this has caused a lot of women to go back into that disconnected state of mind and fixate on weight and fixate on food because the reality of the situation is simply too much to handle. Without a doubt. I mean, what we're being asked, all of us are being asked to do is to beef up our coping skills Mm -hmm. and to learn how to handle uncomfortable emotions because there's really nothing comfortable about what's going on right now. And there is a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety out there. And so the question is, do you want to work with how you can grow your capacity to experience anxiety and fear and anger and all of those things? Or are you not in a place where that feels doable? And so you might go back to those sort of old, well-worn paths of, I cope by dieting or I cope by eating. I love how you just said, do you want to work to grow your capacity to experience those emotions? Because I think that ultimately what a lot of us are trying to do via dieting is avoid those emotions. And in addition to that, you know, we we often think that changing our relationship with food will also help us avoid those emotions. But the truth is when you peel off that layer and you become more more connected, you are going to be entrenched in a lot of those emotions. So it's about building up a resiliency to it. That's right. And, you know, when I was a kid, sort of cliche, but I, you know, every night I had to have my mom come in and turn on the light in my closet and show me proof that there was no like bad guy in there. And I think that that's a little bit of what's happened with these uncomfortable emotions is, is that they've been built up into this big, scary thing. Mm-hmm. And that there is, it, it we can sort of turn the light on and see like, oh, that's not pleasant, but it's also not as big and bad as awful and awful as I thought it was going to be. Oh, I was thinking about this exact thing yesterday. <laughs> this exact thing. I was just thinking how it's always just this simulated version of the truth. And, yes. you know, our minds are so good at creating these fears. But when we actually experience it, it's, it's never that bad. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, I was talking about this the other day because it's it it kind of works the same way with dieting. Dieting gives us this mag- it's magical thinking, right? We think, okay, yeah. if I do this and it gives us that sense of a little bit of a sense of euphoria, but the the truth is it's it's so artificial and, and none of that is is really real and it's it works the same way with fear. You know, we almost have like that magical thinking in a negative sense with fear and when we're actually in it and doing it or experiencing it, it's never that bad. That's right. Magical thinking is a great way of putting it. I had a a student or a client tell me, 
you know, this X diet is the one that has, that has worked for me. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what's the definition of worked for you? Like, and you know, and she's like, well, you know, I lose weight initially. Right. <laughs> and then, you know, it all comes back and then I feel crazy around food and da, 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 da. And I'm like, wow, that's your definition of working for you. Yeah. When we sort of step back and look a little bit more objectively, we can see, no, that doesn't work. And wow, I can actually feel things and they don't kill me. It doesn't kill me to feel sad. It doesn't kill me to feel afraid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So on that note, I know, you know, we're talking about dieting, giving us that sense of it disconnects us. It's almost like a, you know, that coping Mm -hmm. mechanism. And in your particular circumstance, you mentioned it helped you cope with anxiety and, and sensitivity. Yeah. You know, once we start feeding the actual hungers, and we experience fullness, it often doesn't feel the same, at least in my experience, it's not that same, like euphoric main manic sense of artificial pleasure that we get from dieting because we're so heavily invested in it. Yeah. I would love to know your perspective on that. And just when you talk about, you know, feeding your hungers and your personal experience and working with women over the years, you know, what does it feel like for them once they are full, like once they're living a more fulfilling mm. life? Yeah, I, I, I love that sort of differentiation. It's not that manic high. I can remember that having <laughs> flashbacks to like, eating foods that were sort of forbidden. And, you know, I had a client this week say to me that, you know, I don't know what to do without the objective measure of, of my weight on the scale. Mm. And she's like, you know, I need a new measure. And I said, how about days where you feel at ease? Yes. You know, start counting, you know, and she's like, oh, like, you know, yeah, there's so many more of those. And I think that's really what I'm going for is that sort of my life feels like an exhale. It feels that I feel at home. I feel comfortable. I don't feel like I'm walking on a tightrope. Or if I just slightly veer to the left, I'm out of bounds, you know, there's a lot of spaciousness and there's a lot of joy because when we start to listen to our hungers, we are led in the direction of what makes us, you know, what makes us uniquely joyful. Mm-hmm. I, I love the word spaciousness or expansiveness. I think it's a good way of, of putting it because it is much more of a peace of mind versus a exhilarated frame of mind. Absolutely. So you talked about being a highly sensitive person. And this is something that I really want to pick your brain about because I am not one. (laughs) And so I do have clients that are though. So I would love you to maybe just start off by talking about your experiences being a highly sensitive person and what that means. Yeah, so you are part of the, I guess, four out of five four out of five people are not highly sensitive people. We make up about 20% of the population. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you think of like a memory foam mattress or like, that's sort of how I I describe highly sensitive people is we take in more stimulus than non highly sensitive people. So that can come in all forms that can come in sound, noise, light, temperature, emotional stimulus, we take in a much greater percentage of that. You might think of it also like how dogs can hear things that humans can't. Okay. So HS, HSPs can pick up on things that non-HSPs can't. And it is a temperament that has strengths and challenges. So, you know, I grew up in a family of non-HSPs, so I was a little bit like an alien to them. <laughs> 
And it took me a long, long, long time to understand that this temperament was ultimately a gift, but also came with its own self-care requirements. And it certainly tied into my relationship with food. And it ties into a lot of women's relationships with food because when we don't know that our stimulation level is something that we can manage or work with, what we often find is that we eat when we're overstimulated without even knowing that that's what's going on, Mm. which is separate than eating for our anxiety or difficult emotions. Just being overstimulated can be enough to have people reach for the grounding effects of food. But when we know that we're a highly sensitive person, when we know the situations and specific stimuli that we are sort of sponges to, um, then we can sort of advocate for ourselves in those situations and work with it and and learn what is it that brings my nervous system down? What other, what else, you know, besides food brings my nervous system down? Or what decisions can I make so that I don't find myself so frequently overstimulated? Hmm. Okay. Did you always know that you were an HSP or was that something that became revealed to you later on? Well, the term HSP, which is coined by Dr. Elaine Aaron, I didn't learn about that until my 20s. And I don't know exactly when she coined that term, but I always knew, like if you, if you had asked my mom or me, you know, is, is Rachel highly sensitive? They would have been off the charts. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that's, um, that's really fascinating because to not really know that or identify, I I mean, I guess, and I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth or thoughts, but I would imagine that finding that out would almost be like a coming home in that you're like, oh, like, this is what it means. Like, this is who I am. And and did it help you embrace it? Oh, 100%. And it helped me find language to communicate to people in my life to help me make sense to them. And it helped me sort of have a greater confidence in saying, you know, for example, if my partner and I are in a loud bar or somewhere where there's live music, you know, I feel much more confident saying, you know, I'm going to catch a cab home because, you know, I've reached my limit and it's not a big deal. You know, he has a higher capacity. That's fine. And he, it's not personal for him. And so I don't think I would have, I would have probably forced myself to, I did force myself to muscle through a lot of situations that were not a good fit for me or where I had passed my sensitivity threshold because I didn't know that it was okay that I am different. I had a very similar experience. I I didn't find out I was an introvert until I was Mm -hmm. about 34 years old. And (laughs) my entire life made sense in an instant. And I and I I, I, because I was trying to force myself to be an extrovert, because I thought that that's what people liked. I was I was very much hooked on, you know, what other people thought of me at that time, or prior to that. And, you know, realizing that and then learning about it, I was I was able to comfortably own so many pieces of myself that I had fought for years. So it sounds it sounds like it was a very similar experience. Yeah, and you bring up a, you know, a good point which is that I would say most HSPs are introverts, but not all. So if you have listeners who are like, well, I feel like I might be an HSP, but I'm an extrovert and how does that work? There absolutely are extroverts that are HSPs and introverts who are not HSPs and all of that. And there's a little online quiz on Elaine Aaron's website that if people are curious if they're an HSP, they can take. I'll link to that in the show notes, which people will be able to find at summerinandin.com forward slash 81. So on that, I know you mentioned that there's gifts and challenges. So what are some of the gifts of being a highly sensitive person? Well, I probably couldn't do what I do 
<laughs> I just think that it, you know, I'm a, an empath and I can pick up on things just much easier and I can feel much more deeply. And that is its own form of intelligence. I think it's not one that is celebrated very much in our larger culture. Mm -hmm. um, we view sensitivity as a weakness, but a lot of the world goes around thanks to feelers, thanks to those of us who can, you know, we're sort of like canaries in a cave. So we're there to say, alert, <laughs> something's not right here. Or, you know, this is exactly the right path we should be on. So hopefully the U.S. government can get some uh, HSPs in positions of power. <laughs> right, right. Is it, I, I mean, it seems to me that it's, uh, it seems like a more female identification. But I suppose that's not necessarily true. Like, do you know the... Uh, I don't know the breakdown, yeah. but I know that there are lots of men who are all, also HSPs. But I certainly think women are, are socialized more to be attuned more to emotions. Mm -hmm. I've worked with uh, a few women who who are clearly HSPs who, you know, during their upbringing, they were they were told to, you know, either muscle through their emotions, or why are you being so sensitive? And I feel like those messages can be particularly damaging to feeling comfortable in, in who they are. You know, what's your what's your advice to somebody like that if they're, you know, if they're trying to wrestle with some of these beliefs that have been ingrained in, in their mind from their upbringing? Fuck that. <laughs> sort of first response. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, all of us are on a journey to sort of reclaim who we are and the parts of ourselves that either our family of origin or society at large has told us we should feel ashamed for. Mm-hmm. And so that's just one of those things that has been misunderstood and it's on us as individuals because no one else is going to do it for us to say, no, like this is how I'm wired. This is how, you know, 20% of the population is wired and this is a gift and it, yes, it has challenges and I'm not going to be ashamed of it and I'm going to advocate for my needs and take care of myself and also help other people understand it. And so I have a sort of like a, a fierce response. I mean, I have a lot of compassion for the shame that uh, many people feel about it. But, and I was told many, many, many times that I was too sensitive. And I just think what an insane thing to tell someone to so anytime we put like the word to T O O in front of a quality. I just think, how could you, that's such a subjective judgment. Right. And what does it mean to be enough of that? Well, that's and I think that that's why we always feel like we're not enough is because we're always too much of something, you know, or, you know, whether it's our size or our voice or any any different attribute that we bring, especially as women, we're constantly criticized that whatever we are is too much or too little of something. Right. And I think that's you know, a good reason to drop out of any race is that it's a race where you're always either going to be too much or not enough. Mm -hmm. then I would just say stop participating. Yeah, so let's talk about this as it relates to, you know, resisting female standards and being who you are. But as as someone who is more sensitive, but they start to own who they are and potentially step outside their comfort zone. I know that 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 can come with a lot of discomfort, whether it's exposure to possibly some judgment or possibly some criticism or rejection. How do you balance those two things as a sensitive person? Well, you know, I think, you know, your work and everyone you've had on your show, that there's this movement to get women to operate 
from themselves rather than from what's going on outside them. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, this is just one part of that. So when we own our sensitivity, that's very much a body-based experience. It's very much coming back to our our sensory cues from our body and coming back to the power in our body to give us the information that we need. And so I think it's it's part of tuning out the noise from outside. It's just another piece of that, which we're doing on all of these different fronts in the women's empowerment movement, which is, you know, I know best what I need and it's no one else's business and no one else has the right to tell me what I should and shouldn't do or need or eat or look like or how I should love or what I should say. It's just one piece of that. Yeah. And I, it's, it's, it's hard. It's not something that you just yeah. turn on, which I think is really important to recognize. And, and in your experience, was that something that you gradually eased yourself into? I know you said you were a feminist when you were right. younger, but do you feel like as you recovered from having an eating disorder and really stepped into who you are, that it was more of a, a, a gradual progression to not caring what people think? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a great question. I think that the I think when we it's not a hundred percent of the time, but generally speaking, in my experience, when I care what other people think, all that I'm doing is projecting my own self judgment onto them. Mm-hmm. I'm literally taking my own judgment of myself and just throwing it outside and and back at myself. And when I don't have judgment of me, when I have acceptance of me, when I have that spaciousness for all of me, including my many imperfections and that I almost don't even hear other people's judgment. It's pretty rare that we're directly overtly judged. Most of the time it is just in our head that we think someone else is thinking this or we fear someone else is thinking something. And most of the time, all that is, is our own judgment. So I think that the work for me was around practicing non-judgment towards myself. And that just naturally rippled out into feeling less judged by others and caring less mm-hmm. what others think. Yeah, I agree with that. For me, it was really about becoming curious with about the um, the beliefs that that were causing me to feel that way. Because obviously, if I if so, if I feel like someone's judging me or I'm hurt by criticism, it means they've struck something yes. inside of me that I feel about myself. Yes, and so. What was super helpful for me, which I think is like exactly what you're saying is to is to think about it from that perspective, instead of thinking like, oh, what's wrong with me? It's just like, hmm, like, what belief am I hanging on to here about myself that maybe we need to unpack a little bit more? Yeah, one of the examples I often give is, you know, if you found out that I judged you for having blonde hair, you probably wouldn't care at all. Because you don't personally feel any shame or judgment about that. It's true. So you would just let me own that. (laughs) You know, you would just be like, that's on Rachel. That's her thing. Um, Whereas, you know, if I, if you found out I was judging you for something that you already feel shame and judgment about, then I might, you know, it might touch a chord. So it is on us to sort of do that work. 
And you know what's so interesting about you using that as as an example is that often people with blonde hair are you know there's a stereotype that we're that you know we're we're dumb and and yeah. I I I part of the the beliefs that I still hang on with are that I'm you know that I'm not like that I'm not smart you know so mm. so that is not 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 specifically I think I am smart but just in certain areas where I'm just like who do I think I am to be saying this right now. So it's interesting. Which brunettes feel too. (laughs) Yeah, I know exactly. But it was just interesting how you said that because, yeah, from an from an aesthetics perspective, I could care less. But if I look at the stereotype that's attached to that meaning, I probably would feel judged, and therefore, you know, that would be an indication to me that there's like, oh, that hit that chord, that one thing inside, you know, that that part of me that feels inferior based on my, you know, my capabilities. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh it's You could pick a different example too, you know, I could say if Rachel's <laughs> judging me for having eyebrows or Rachel's judging me for having, you know, fine little hair on my forearm. You could pick, pick something totally random. Mhm. Just just to point out that like if we don't judge it, it doesn't really matter. So true, right? It's like it, it and I think that that goes within ourselves too. I've used this example before, but you know, I'm not a good runner and I I don't care that I'm not a good runner. <laughs> it's yeah. like, it's a, that's okay. Like, or, you know, like, I don't care if you don't like my eyebrows, you know? Yeah. But then, so yeah. yeah, it's, it's really, it is good to bring in that perspective and look at yourself as this whole being and really start to see like, oh, like there's, you know, there's a reason why this particular judgment really affects me. You know, I was thinking about that this week, because at the time of recording this, it's just after the Super Bowl and Lady Gaga performed, and there was some sort of body shaming controversy around mm-hmm. this very tiny bit of uh, mm-hmm. belly fat. And I know that if that had happened, and I'm sure it happened in a different form, but if that had happened when I was 15, 18, 22, I, it would have fueled my own body shame. Yes. But it happened because I ha- I felt that. But now I have no shame about my belly fat. And and so I experienced that totally differently. I experienced that as, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And it's just so I'm thinking about, again, it's all about our own feelings about ourselves. It's so true. I think if somebody had criticized my body, you know, five years ago, I would have been absolutely devastated and now if somebody criticized my body like I could really care less I yeah. really like <laughs> I would probably laugh <laughs> would just yeah, and like... it's not because your body's changed <laughs> no it's just because I don't it's just disconnected from the way I feel about myself now and or or that I just own it and it's part of me and, and so I'm, I'm comfortable with it so yeah it's it's fascinating to to look at that absolutely So you wrote a brilliant post on body sovereignty. Mm. And I'd love you to elaborate on that and speaking to the difference between what you can what you called body submission versus body sovereignty. Yeah, it's a it's really a connected to what we've just been talking about this notion of your body is your body. But I'm really just aware of all of the subtle ways that we as women defer our bodily preferences and needs to other people. Mm. And so, you know, examples that I gave are, you know, maybe you are, you know, going for a run, not you, but someone uh, (laughs) with with a friend and, you know, your body is saying, stop, stop, stop. I don't want to be doing this or this hurts or 
I need to rest, but you don't want to, you know, ruin your friend's run or be a bummer. So you just muscle through or you go to the doctor and you, you don't want to step on the scale because you know that a, that's useless information and B it's triggering for you, but you don't want to be a bother to the nurse. You don't want to be a difficult patient. So you don't, or you know that you're not hungry, but you go out to lunch and you force yourself to eat something because you don't want the person you're eating with to feel uncomfortable. All of these ways in which we ignore and override our body, which I sort of call that body submission, instead of owning that we have a right to make people uncomfortable, to ruffle feathers, to be an inconvenience in service of advocating for our body. Mm. And there's, of course, a much larger sociopolitical issue here, which is, you know, there's a lot of forces who want women to be in a state of body submission, who want women to defer their bodily preferences to the wishes of industries and politicians and religions. And so these examples that I gave might seem really minor, but they're not. They're part of a whole paradigm shift and a whole shift in embodiment in saying, no, like my body is my own and I'm not going to feel ashamed or embarrassed or hold back in advocating for what she wants and needs. Mm -hmm. I feel like, oh, this, this is such a good point. I I feel like so many of us are just trying to be accommodating. Mm -hmm. And when you put it in the in the words of uh, when you use the phrase body submission, like submission. Mm -hmm. Wow, like, it's a very powerful way of, of thinking about it. I mean, how many of us have been having physical intimacy with a partner and wanted something to change and not said anything? Yeah, wow. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens just like that in that moment where we've left ourselves, we've left our body and women need more practice ruffling feathers and disappointing people. Yeah. Like aim to inconvenience other people. Watch how the world will still keep spinning. Yeah. What was that? um, What's that been like for you? I mean, were you were you always... No. <laughs> able to, I mean, because I'm not like I, I, I still that's still something I really uh, it's been a long journey no, for me to get better I mean, and better at that. It's, you know, millennia have gone into sort of conditioning women and myself included to want to be liked mm-hmm. and to want to be perceived as nice and sweet and thoughtful and and not not to poo poo those things. And I think by and large, people in my, my life would say that I'm nice and thoughtful. But yeah, oh, it takes practice. It takes practice, but also, you know, speaking like in my marriage, it doesn't benefit my husband in the long run for me to stay quiet because that just, you know, that builds up resentment and it builds up like a, like a, it closes my body down Mm -hmm. to him if I am not communicating what she feels, wants, needs, thinks. The only way that I can stay open is by being honest. Mm Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's uncomfortable. And yeah, you know, I can find myself doing the thing where it's like, I'm so sorry, (laughs) you know, apologizing for my own needs. It's icky. Yeah. It can be very icky. Like just letting people down, like you said, disappointing people. It's uh, even just, I'm just thinking about it right now. And I'm like, oh, it's just so icky. (laughs) Yeah, but I also think that's one of the things that we have built up in our head. (laughs) Totally. You're right. You know, I've, you know, he's been a great teacher in my life that like, wow, he's fine. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, 
he's fine. I didn't ruin his life or his day just because I wanted something different or because something he was doing, you know, wasn't working for me. And we need more experience like that. It's very healing for women to learn like, wow, I can actually say what I need and I want. And it's okay. Yeah, I think we're trying so hard to protect ourselves, like protect our own emotions and or like our own, you know, we we don't want to, we don't want to feel guilt. Guilt is like, the emotion that we try so hard to avoid. Right. Well, we never, ever, ever, ever need to feel guilty for advocating for what our body is telling us. Yeah. So like, you know, for, for you, was it just starting to make that more of a priority, like something that you wanted to be more loyal to was just advocating for yourself and getting comfortable with that. And then did the guilt kind of slowly go away over time? Yeah. And I think it's, for me, it's like, I spent, I think a lot of years not doing that. And my body basically was like, "Uh uh-uh, like, do you know what I'm saying? Like you can only override your body to a point and then your body in all different ways is going to rise up and say, nope. And so I think if, you know, if I can wave a magic wand, I probably would have just had my body go along with what was convenient, but it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like, this just is, I'm, my body is forcing me to be empowered and that's uncomfortable and I'm grateful for it. Right. I know. It's uh and I feel like now especially women are really feeling like it's it's okay to resist and it's okay to be an inconvenience. Like that I feel like there's, yes. you know, obviously because of everything that's happening politically and culturally that there women are stepping into that a little bit more and owning it, you know, being a little bit more decisive, like fear of the fear of not pleasing everybody is has started to go away because we're seeing that when we don't inconvenience others and we don't step into our power and and move into a state of body sovereignty like you said then american democracy goes yeah away. we lose yeah literally we lose our rights we lose our rights yeah. and right. and so i as much as everything that's going on is is horrifying at the same time I feel like it's woken a lot of people up and helped them to to take a step up and 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 advocate for themselves absolutely if there if there is a silver lining that is definitely it yeah so I want to come back to something that you mentioned when we were talking about you being an HSP and that was that you have your own self-care requirements I'm curious to know what what those are well every HSP is sensitive to different stimuli so you know, the things that I'm sensitive to, another HSP might not be sensitive to. So, you know, and some of these overlap with being an introvert, you know, but a a hearty dose of alone time, I'm sensitive, you know, to lighting, temperature, like really loud crowd, crowded situations I can do in small doses. So, or, you know, and my work is set up, you know, also, I only, you know, see three to four clients a day. And, Um, only between certain hours. It's just sort of thinking about noticing, like, when do I hit like stimulation burnout? And, you know, my, my husband is not, of course, trained. So like, if a certain song comes on the radio, you know, he like is like the first to turn it off, because he knows it'll (laughs) just like my whole body is just like, yeah, it sounds simple, but it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like, uh, again, coming back to spaciousness, it sounds like just giving yourself that time to recharge. It, it sounds to me very similar to, to being an introvert and charging as an introvert. Yeah, I mean, I don't have sensitivity to smells like some HSPs do, which I know can be really challenging. And 
but yeah, if I don't, you know, I could go on, makes me sound very sensitive, but (laughs) (laughs) have the right lotion and the right this. But that's important. I feel like that's important for people to hear because, you know, coming back to this place where we feel like we're like an inconvenience or like I'm too needy, but it's, it's really just about knowing what works for you and owning it. I think as long as in the end, when your needs are taken care of, you look around and you see that your life is of service, then that's where the the sustainability and the sort of symbiotic relationship comes in. So yeah, I care a lot about taking care of myself, but I do that in service to, you know, the impact I want my life to have in other people's lives. And I cannot serve other people if I'm not taken care of. Yeah, I feel like that's such a hard one for people to to really buy into. But it's so true. I mean, it's just we have to take care of ourselves. Like the world needs us to be recharged and strong. Yeah, and that doesn't mean like a punishing exercise routine and green juice every morning. No, You know, I think we're also sold on this like what self-care looks like and it's, you know, in Glamour magazine. And that's not what, you know, self-care looks like, you know, playing a crossword on my iPad or watching a funny movie or eating ice cream or, you know, whatever, staying in bed all day. It can look like all kinds of different things. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I I did a whole thing on self-care recently where I was like, it is not acting like you're Mariah Carey. That is not what self-care is. Maybe it is for you. Like, that's cool if that's your jam. But if your name's Mariah, <laughs> there's yeah, so many maybe. myths around it. And uh, yeah, it's 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 about finding the the things that really work work for you. So that's, that's helpful. And I think that you've offered so much good stuff today. And I appreciate you letting me ask you about being a, a highly sensitive person, because I know that this is going to resonate with a lot of people. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So before we wrap up, uh, I would love you to tell people where they can get in touch with you and talk a little bit about your your feast program as well. Sure. So my website's rachelwcole.com and pretty much everywhere I'm Rachel W. Cole. So Instagram, Facebook, all those things. And in addition to my one-on-one coaching work, I teach a course twice a year. It's a three-month long master class. And it really touches on a lot of what you and I have talked about today. So I lead women through deepening their self-compassion, increasing their emotional coping tool bag, learning how to manage their sensitivity. We spend a whole month on intuitive eating, and then we shift and look at you know, how we can apply that same trust we've learned with our food hungers to our non-food hungers and looking at feasting on our lives. And so The next run of the course will be in this fall, and the website for the course is feast.rachelwcole.com. Great, and I'll link to that in the show notes at summerinandin.com forward slash 81. Thank you so much for being here today. I loved I love talking with you. We're on the same wave. I know we went to the we we went through the same coaching program. So we're definitely on the same wavelength in a lot of ways. It was so lovely having you here. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Summer. Thank you, Rachel. Rock on. Rachel has such an eloquent way of talking about these subject matters. I hope that you enjoyed hearing her speak today. I will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Rock on. 